All right. Well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you're new here today, my name is Will and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And I want to begin today by saying hello to all of our High Point family. And so whether you are here at our East Memphis campus or perhaps you are being streamed in from our Carville campus or maybe you are a part of our church at home campus, we are so grateful for each and every one of you. And we consider it a blessing to have you be a part of our High Point family. Now, this morning, we are in the second week of our multi-week series entitled The Names of God. And today we are going to be looking at the next name of God, which is Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to do that, I want for you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, and we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 19. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. And I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. If you are ready, say, I'm ready. Verse 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offerings on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, everyone say the third day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, so uh, they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, everyone say behold, Behold. the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know, everyone say, now I know, that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord 
called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, I want to thank you for this morning. I thank you for how you are working in this place and for how you are moving in these people. And Father, I pray that you would lead me. I pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, that you would keep me from saying anything that does not come from you. I can't think of a story in the Old Testament that most clearly points to the work of the gospel than this story. And so as a result, I pray that I would not muddy the waters. I pray that I would make it crystal clear, not just what this passage means, uh, but ultimately what this passage points to, which is the work of Jesus on the cross. Help me, help us, be among us, and have your word go forth so that your work might be glorified. We ask it and we beg it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. All right, so this morning what we're going to do is we are going to be looking at this passage under two headings. We are going to begin today by looking at the partial provision, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the final provision. So we're beginning with the partial, and we are concluding with the final But I want to begin today by looking at the partial provision that is given for us in this passage. You see, I would argue that in order for us to truly understand what is happening here in this story, uh, there are three lessons that I believe we learn about God in Genesis 22. Three lessons. A a better way to put it, uh, that there there are three requirements that God requires of his people in light of this story. The first thing that God requires is a tested faith. The second thing that God requires is an undivided heart. And then the third thing that God requires is a paid debt. A tested faith, an undivided heart, and a paid debt. And as we look at those three requirements, we will understand the partial provision that is talked about here in this story. But I would argue that the first thing that God requires of his people is a tested faith. Now, here's the thing. Up to this point in the life of Abraham, God and Abraham have been through a lot of stuff together. So we are starting to read the story in Genesis 22. But God began his relationship with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. So it's quite literally been 10 chapters now that they have been walking together. Now, 10 chapters doesn't seem like much, but according to scholars, that's roughly around 25 years that have passed. Abraham was 75 when he met God, and now he is a little over 100. So God and Abraham 
have been through it. It's been 25 long years of testing and growing and developing and depending. And so now in Genesis 22, God approaches Abraham, which ironically, you may not know this, for the last time. This is actually the last time God speaks to Abraham in all the Bible. Because within the next two chapters, Sarah dies. And then not too long after that, Abraham dies. This is the last time, according to scripture, I'm not saying they didn't talk at some other point, but according to scripture, this is the last time that God speaks to Abraham. And I would say that God saved the best for less because what God is about to require from Abraham is easily the greatest test that Abraham has ever gone through. It is the final and greatest test that God brings him through. And the reason why I use the word test is because that's the word that the passage uses. It says in verse one that God tested Abraham. And in Hebrew, the word there, test, it literally means to test something or someone, to try them, to stretch them to their limits in order to determine their value, their quality, and their true nature. That's what the word there, test, means. To be tried and to be stretched to your limits in order to determine the value, the quality, and the true nature of your faith. God here is testing Abraham. Now, here's the thing about this test that God is bringing. Like I mentioned, it's already been 10 chapters. It's already been over 25 years. And I would argue that over the course of those 25 years, God has been very patient. He's been very gentle. He's been slowly growing and developing and stretching the faith of Abraham. And I would argue that it all builds up to this pivotal moment in the life of Abraham. This is the final test, the ultimate test of his faith and reliance on God. Now, let me summarize the story for you. I know we read through it, but I feel that there's a lot of things that we can just skim right past. So it says at the beginning of the passage that not only is God testing him, but it says after all these things, which essentially refers to everything they've gone through up to that point. It says after all these things, God shows up and informs Abraham that he requires a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is of his son, Isaac. Now, that would already be difficult enough. But the fact that in quite literally the chapter right before Genesis 21, God says, I want you to essentially let Ishmael go. He goes from having two sons to only having one left. So God, after doing what he does and asking Abraham to do what he does in Genesis 21, in the very next chapter, we're not sure how much time has passed. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to take him to the region of Moriah. There's a mountain in the region of Moriah. I will show you the mountain when you get there, but I need you to leave immediately. 
So we are told that the very next morning, Abraham, Isaac, and two of his servants, they get everything ready and they head to the region of Moriah. And according to scholars, because of where Abraham is currently located, it was roughly a three days journey. They would have to have traveled somewhere around 15 to 18 miles every day in order to get there on the third day. They arrive on the third day. Abraham sees the place where God wants the sacrifice to be made. And he tells the two men, we will be back. We're going to go worship. Interesting is the word he uses. And we will be back. And so Abraham has the fire and the knife. And Isaac, if you look at the story, carries the wood of his own sacrifice up the mountain. Okay. They get to the top of the mountain. And because God asked Isaac to offer a burnt offering, there was multiple steps that would have to be taken. One, Isaac would have to be bound, his hands and his feet. In other words, in order for this to happen, Isaac would have to be a willing, submissive participant. Because by this time, Abraham is 100, and scholars say that Isaac was probably around 16 years old. So he was stronger than his dad. There's a reason why he carried the wood. So at any point, he could have overpowered his dad and said, I'm not doing it. But instead, we see that Isaac was a silent, submissive participant. And so Abraham would have had to bound his hands. He would have had to stretch out his arms. He would have had to be bound, hands and feet, on this wooden altar. And then Abraham essentially would have to slit his throat, bleed him out, and then burn him as a burnt offering. That's what was going to be required in that moment. But then we are told that after he is bound, Abraham grabs the knife and as he is about to sacrifice him, God speaks and says, Abraham, Abraham. And we learned last week that when God says a name twice, it's a sign of intimacy, but it's also a sign of urgency. And he says, do not lay a hand on that boy or on, that, on your son. And then it says that Abraham looked up and behold, there was a ram in a thicket. Quite literally, its, its head, its horns were stuck in a thorn bush. He then takes the ram, sacrifices the ram instead. And then upon doing that, God speaks to him again. And God says, in light of what you've done, now I know that you love me and that you trust me. And in light of that, I will swear by myself that I will keep this covenant. It's one of the few places in scripture where God swears by himself. We can't swear in God's name, but God can swear in his own name. And God says, in light of what you've done, now I know that you love me, that you trust me. And so I'm swearing by my own name that the covenant will come to pass. That is the story that we find here. But here's why I mentioned that God requires tested faith. Because how was Abraham, as a father, just willing to give up his son? Anyone here who has children 
knows how incredibly difficult this would be. You see, but there's a reason why God waited 25 years to do this. Because over the 25 years, over the 10 chapters, God had taught Abraham many things. God had stretched his faith. God had grown his faith. God had developed his faith. And Abraham is at a point now where he has so much faith in God that he knew God could not lie. And as a result, God could never break a promise that he had already made. And here's what's interesting. If you go back to Genesis chapter 21, so quite literally the chapter right before this, in verse 12 of Genesis 21, God tells Abraham, right after Abraham lets Ishmael go, God says, Abraham, in verse 12, it is through your son Isaac that the plan will go through. It is through him that I will bless you. It is through him that I will keep the covenant going. God makes it very specific in verse 12 of Genesis 21 that it is Isaac through whom he would bless the world. Why is that important? Well, because then in the very next chapter, when God says, sacrifice Isaac, Abraham knows Isaac can't go because Isaac is part of the plan. God already told me that. So Abraham has so much faith in the word of God, in the promises of God, that he literally believed that even if he would have sacrificed Isaac, God would have brought him back to life. Now, I'm not just assuming that. The author of Hebrews actually tells us that. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, 17 through 19. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's Genesis 21, verse 12. That's the quote. Verse 19, listen to this. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By this point in his life, his faith had been so tested, he had so trusted the words and the promises of God that he said, even if I do this, he will bring him back. Because God will not break his promise. God will never go back on his word. Here's what's awesome about God in the way he deals with us. In Genesis chapter 12, which is where God calls Abraham to leave his land and his family. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham has to trust God with the where. In Genesis chapter 18, which is where the angel of the Lord shows up and tells them they're going to have a child, he has to trust God with the when. Then here in Genesis 22, he has to trust God with the how. He goes from trusting God with the where to trusting God with the when to then trusting God with the how. And after God provides, because that's what he does in the story, Abraham names him Jehovah Jireh, the Lord 
provides. And in many ways, that essentially becomes the, the motto of his life. Like if you were to summarize Abraham's life in a phrase, it would be, the Lord provides. So the reason why I tell you this, the reason why I mentioned that the first requirement that God has of his people, if you are a follower of Jesus here today, or you are considering being a follower of Jesus here today, you need to know that God requires a tested faith. As a result, what that means is we cannot be surprised when the tests happen. If you don't expect a test, you will doubt God's love when it shows up. But it's not a maybe, it is a definitely. Your faith in God will be tested. It will be stretched in order for you and for God to determine the value, the quality, and the true nature of your faith. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. He says, our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, do what seems unreasonable, and expect what seems impossible. Whether you look at Joseph in prison, Moses and Israel at the Red Sea, David in the cave, or Jesus at Calvary, the lesson is the same. We live by promises, not by explanations. He says, Abraham believed that even if God allowed him to slay his son, he could raise Isaac from the dead. Then he says, faith does not demand explanations. Faith rests on promises. If God gives you an explanation for why he is testing you, it's no longer faith. It's a conversation. You're no longer relying on the tester, which is God. You're relying on the information that he's revealed. True faith does not demand explanations. It rests on promises. And Biblically speaking, the reason why this is so important is because faith in Scripture, if you guys remember, we looked at the shield of faith. We said that faith in Scripture, it literally means to place your weight on something, to lean on something, to put all your body weight on something, to rest it, to lay on it. And so the illustration that we used back then was a hammock. Right? God is the hammock, and there are two types of people. There are people who fully rest on a hammock, and there's the people who always keep one leg out, just in case. Right? A lot of us keep the leg out, just in case. You never know. The tree's going to give out, if the hammock's going to give out. But true faith, biblically speaking, means to pull you, put your full weight on something. And in this case, that's something that someone is God. I would argue that the reason why God brings us through tests, sometimes he does it to produce faith, but many times he does it to reveal our faith. So sometimes a test shows up and God uses the test to produce more faith in us. That sometimes happens. But what happens every time is that when a test shows up, God reveals where your faith actually is. Are you actually trusting in me 
or are you trusting in your bank account or your retirement or your spouse or your kids or your career or your education or your abilities? His tests sometimes produce faith, but they always reveal faith. Where is our faith really? That's what we see here in this story. Now, the next thing I would argue that we learn about God in this story is that God not only requires tested faith, but he also requires an undivided heart. He requires an undivided heart. You know, one of the things that I'm not sure the, the story does a good job of explaining to us is it, it almost makes Abraham feel like a robot, right? He hears the command, and the very next day, he wakes up and with no emotion goes to sacrifice his son. But just because that's not written in the passage doesn't mean that there weren't feelings involved. I would actually imagine that he didn't sleep that night. There's a good chance also that he didn't tell Sarah about it. Because then not only would she not have slept, but she would be with him on the trip. Right? And I could just imagine the, the hopelessness, the, the fear of losing his child, his beloved son. Right? The, not just the fear of maybe losing the, the past relationship, but the, the potential of a future relationship. Just as a father, there's no way that you could have hear, hear something like that and not respond emotionally. But here's the thing. The reason why I bring up an undivided heart, you would think that because I'm talking about feelings, that's how I'm going to segue to an undivided heart. But actually in Scripture, what we see is that many times when the Bible talks about our emotions— it's not referring to our heart. It's actually referring to our gut, our intestines. In scripture, your feelings come from your gut. It's not like in our day where it comes from our heart, figuratively, right? In scripture, when we hear the word heart, the heart represents not your feelings. It represents your volition. It represents your worship. It represents the core of your person. So when I say that God wants an undivided heart, I'm not saying God wants your emotions. I'm saying God wants you, the entirety of your person. And what we see here in the story of Abraham is that God required and desired Abraham's heart. Here's why we know that. Because God wanted to make sure, get this, that Abraham wasn't putting his trust in the gift but in the giver. Anyone here who's ever struggled with infertility knows the temptation to put your trust in the child once that child arrives, right? God, part of the reason why God is bringing Abraham through this is because God knows that Abraham is a human with a sinful heart. And Abraham's temptation was to put his trust in the gift and not the giver to put his trust in the provision and not the provider. Think about Abraham's situation. God has made all these promises. And then finally, Isaac is born. If I were Abraham, I would be tempted to take my eyes off God and say, don't need God anymore. He's already here. This is where my hope is found. This is where I will 
place my trust and my faith. He is who I will ultimately lean on and put my weight on. But God does what he does because he didn't want Abraham trusting Isaac. He wanted Abraham trusting him. At the end of the day, and if you're taking notes, write this down. God didn't want Isaac's life. He wanted Abraham's heart. I'm gonna say that again because I know somebody missed it. At the end of the day, God didn't want Isaac's life. He wanted Abraham's heart. When we look at the story of Isaac and Abraham, God miraculously gave Isaac to Abraham. And now it was time for Abraham to give Isaac back to God. See, a lot of us are quick to take the first step, receive the gift. A lot of us are not as quick to take the second step, which is giving the gift back to God. God gave it to him, gave him to Abraham initially, and now it was time for Abraham to give him back. And that's why in the story, what we see is that God literally says, you have not withheld your son from me. Abraham is able to prove his devotion to God because he did not withhold his son from God. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with. And your answer to this question will reveal the Isaacs in your life. What in your life are you withholding from God? What thing, person, area of your life do you tell God, hey, you can have everything else, but not this? Whatever you are withholding from God is your actual God. Oz Guinness puts it this way. He says, idolatry may not, involve, it may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come in the form of an overattachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. Another author put it this way. I don't have his quote up there, but here's what he said. And think about this. He says, your pain right now in this season could be God prying open your life and your heart to remove a gift of his that you have been holding onto more dearly than him. So again, I asked the question, what are you withholding from God? What is your Isaac? You see, at the end of the day, I would argue that when we look at the New Testament, Jesus calls his disciples to full loyalty and full dependence. Jesus literally says, he says, I want you to forsake everything else in comparison to me. 
I want you to love me so much that everything else seems like hate. That is what Jesus calls us to do. But I would argue that in order for us to be disciples who have undivided hearts, we have to understand the grace of Jesus Christ. I I genuinely believe that we will only be able to get to a place where we can give up anything when we understand that in the gospel we have been given everything. Until you understand that you've been given everything, you will not be willing to give up anything. That's what we see in this text. That a disciple is someone who gives up anything because in the gospel they have been given everything. So the first thing we see that God requires of us is a tested faith. The second thing that God uh, requires of us is an undivided heart. And I would say the third thing we have to understand that God requires of us in order to understand this partial provision in this story is that God quite literally requires a paid debt. Not just a tested faith, not just an undivided heart, but a paid debt. You see, I would argue that in order for us to truly understand and appreciate what is happening in this story, we have to put ourselves in Abraham's shoes. We have to see this request through the eyes of Abraham. We have to hear the command through the ears of Abraham. See, one of the reasons why I think we struggle with this passage and this story is because we inadvertently take our culture and impose it on this story. You may not know this, but our culture is radically different than Abraham's culture. We live in an individualistic Western culture. Abraham lived in a collectivistic Middle Eastern culture. So here's the difference, for those of you who are wondering. In our culture, the individual comes first. It is all about your potential, your dreams, your success, and your name. That's how an individualistic culture works. But Abraham didn't live in an individualistic culture. He lived in a collectivistic culture, a culture where the group, the family, and the many were more important and carried more weight than the individual. See, in our culture, when we think, we tend to think as individuals. We think for ourselves. But in that culture, you would think as a group. You would think as a family. This is one of the reasons, and I've mentioned this in the past, this is one of the reasons why uh, the movie Mulan, the original cartoon one, there's a reason why that movie failed out of all places in China. The only place where the movie Mulan failed was in China. Why? Well, because according to Chinese movie reviewers, that wasn't really a Chinese girl. Because if you look at the movie Mulan, she was being motivated by individualistic Western values. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to blaze my own path. And I'm going to think of me. So the reason why Chinese reviewers, movie reviewers, completely obliterated the movie 
was because they're like, she's literally an American girl who just happens to have Chinese features. Because no Chinese girl, especially back then, would have ever done what Mulan does. Why? Because we don't even realize how often we take our culture and project it on other people's stories. And I would argue that the same is true here in the story of Abraham. You see, one of the things that was believed in in this culture, because it was a collectivistic culture, they believed in the law of the primogenitor. And the law of the primogenitor means this. It means that the firstborn of the family would always get the full inheritance. It didn't matter how many kids there were, three, five, ten. In that culture, what this law stated is that the firstborn would get the entire inheritance. Why? Well, think about it. In our culture, because we are individualistic, we all want our share of the inheritance. But in that culture, since the group, the family mattered more than the individual, if every generation, if with every generation you would split the inheritance again and again and again, the family would get weaker. It would lose its influence. It would lose its property because it would keep getting divided again and again and again. And so the reason why you would give it all to one person is so that way the family name, the family legacy would stay intact and then the firstborn would essentially behave as a benefactor and then distribute the resources from there. But they belonged to them. That's what this law taught. That's what this law stated. So in many ways, the firstborn was a representative of the entire family. So if you are a math person, I want you to imagine this. Firstborn equals entire family. They represented the whole. And so that's why in scripture, what we see again and again is that God creates a pattern where the firstborn always belonged to him. Since the firstborn represented the entire family, God from the beginning makes it very clear that the firstborn belongs to him. Look what it says in Exodus 13, 1 and 2. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine, God says. So just to give you an idea of how seriously God took this command, if you had cattle, the firstborn of the cattle would have to be sacrificed to God. If you were a farmer, the first fruits of the grain would have to be offered up to God. He brings it up in Exodus 13. He brings it up again in Exodus 22. He brings it up again in Exodus 34. And all throughout Deuteronomy, he mentions it again and again and again. The firstborn represents the family, and as a result, the firstborn belongs to me. That's why during the Passover, the final judgment that God brings is the death of the what? The firstborn. That is the ultimate sign of victory, right? When God wipes out all the firstborns. But here's what's interesting and something that we can easily repass. One of the mistakes that people make when they preach the story of the Exodus is they make it seem like the Egyptians were the bad guys and the Israelites were the good guys. But God literally says to them, if you don't kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost, your firstborn will die too. 
Because there's no such thing as good people and bad people. You are all bad people. So if you don't redeem the firstborn by providing a lamb as a sacrifice, your child will die too. That's what God teaches us in that passage. That the firstborn, the life of the firstborn represented the family. And so if the Jews did not sacrifice, their firstborn would have died too. Why? Well, because sin has impacted every family that's ever existed. And so every family owes a debt to God. And that's why God would require the firstborn. And the only way Jews would get around this would either be by giving your child up to serve God forever, your firstborn, or by going to the temple and making a sacrifice in its place and saying, this lamb is being offered in the place of my child. It's the only way they can get out from under this because of how seriously God took it. But this is why I tell you all this to say this. This is why Abraham doesn't think it's illogical what God's asking for. See, if Abraham would have said, if God would have told Abraham, hey, I want you to go sacrifice yourself, that would have made no sense to Abraham culturally. Why? Or, hey, I want you to sacrifice Sarah. That would have made no sense to him. He probably would have doubted that it was even God talking to him. But when he said, I want you to sacrifice your firstborn, culturally, that would have made perfect sense to Abraham. Because he knew this wasn't just some random request. This was God calling in a debt. Which is why in the story, you never see the sacrifice called off. It's not like God says, oh, no, just kidding. You can go home now. No, the sacrifice isn't called off because if the ram didn't die, Isaac would have died. Sacrifice had to be made. You see, but what I would argue is that in this story, the debt is never fully paid. It's partially paid, but not fully paid. In this story, the partial temporary provision is not ultimately enough. But it points us to the final provision, which then leads us to my second point. The partial provision of Genesis 22 points us to the ultimate and final provision in the New Testament. You see, what we see in this story is actually the beginning of a pattern, the start of a trend. And here's why. Because what we see is that at the end of the day, the provision that was given was not ultimately enough. Well, how do we know? Well, because you may not know this, but the location where Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac is the very location where Solomon builds the temple centuries later. In Chronicles, we are told that King Solomon builds a temple and he builds it on Mount Moriah, the very mountain where this story takes place. But here's what's interesting about the temple that Solomon builds. There was numerous 
And by numerous, I mean thousands. And by thousands, I mean hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that were made on that mountain. In other words, the sacrifice of this ram was the first of many. But what we see is that this sacrifice in particular and all the sacrifices that took place after were never sufficient. They were never sufficient. They were just partial, temporary provisions. And we know that because look what it says in Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, listen to this, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Like literally, the author of Hebrew is admitting, Hebrews is admitting that it's partial and insufficient. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they have not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And in verse 4 says this. For it is impossible. Everyone say impossible. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All those sacrifices on Mount Moriah. Amen. (laughs) They never stopped because they never fully satisfied and provided what was needed. As a matter of fact, in the Levitical system, you as the offerer would have to bring your own sacrifice. And it was never enough. See, but I would argue that this partial provision is a shadow that points us to the final substance and provision. And if Abraham and Isaac are the shadow, then the question we have to wrestle with is, who is the substance? And to answer that question, we actually first have to answer another question. You see, because as we were reading through the story, you might have missed this, but as we were reading through the story, Isaac's question is never fully answered. What's the question that Isaac answered, question that he asked? He says to his father, we have the fire, we have the knife, we have the wood, but where is the lamb? That question is never fully answered because Abraham says the Lord will provide the lamb, which is a partial answer. But then when they get to the top of the mountain, He doesn't provide a lamb. He provides a ram. So what we discover is that the question that Isaac asks is never answered in the Old Testament. And it's actually not answered for another 2,000 years. Because at the beginning of John chapter 1, John the Baptist looks up, same language, And says, behold, 
Same language. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, church. He sees Jesus Christ and says, behold, the Lamb. You see, in the Hebrew, the way it's written in this story, it's a ram, just another ram. But Jesus is not just a lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is the greater Isaac and the greater ram. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, God provided a ram instead of Isaac. This was sufficient for the occasion as a type. But that which was typified by the ram is infinitely more glorious. In order to save us, God provided God. He says, I cannot put it more simply. He did not provide an angel nor a mere man, but God himself. Come on. Jesus is the greater ram. Jesus is the greater Isaac. And what we see when we understand that is the idea that God will provide is not just the turning point of this story. It is the heart of the gospel message. In the gospel, God has provided for you and for me. God's ultimate and final provision is found and discovered in the greater Isaac and in his greater sacrifice. You see, God knew that one day the lamb would have to be provided. But what's interesting is that the mountain on which God provides, the hill on which God shows up, is not on Mount Moriah, but on Mount Calvary, which was Interestingly enough, one of the mountains of Moriah, same region, different hill. God would one day provide not a ram or a lamb, but the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me show you specifically how Jesus is the greater Isaac and the greater ram. Let's, let's work through this. Jesus is the greater Isaac because just like Isaac, they were both promised by an angel. That's the first thing. The second way in which they were similar is that they were both miraculously born. The third way is that they were both beloved by their father. The fourth way is that they were both teased and mistreated by their siblings. The fifth way is that they were both the seed of Abraham. The sixth way is that because of the moment that they lived in, they both were quite literally the hope of the world. The seventh way is that they both carried the wood of their sacrifice up the mountain. The seventh way is that they both Silently submitted 
to the will of their father. They both willingly stretched out their arms and went under the knife of their father. And lastly, they were both delivered on the third day. You see, like Isaac, Jesus, the greater Isaac, was obedient to the point of death. The difference is the greater Isaac actually died. And this is why he's not just the greater Isaac, he's also the greater ram. Because it's not Isaac who dies, it's the ram who ultimately dies. Think about what God provides in this story. In the story, God provides a substitute whose horns are caught in a thorn bush. The ram literally has a crown of thorns. And what's interesting is that unlike the first Isaac, God doesn't spare the greater Isaac. He couldn't. There was no substitute because he was the substitute. The greater Isaac received what the first Isaac deserved. And the wood represents two things. It represents the cross that he took to his own sacrifice, but also the wood represented the burden that he would carry in our place. See, one of the things that we talked about, for those of you who were here during the family discipleship series, week two, we talked about sin and transgression, and we talked about iniquity. That every family has iniquity. Quite literally, we are under the burden of iniquity. But according to Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ was crushed under our iniquities. He took the burden. So God knew that if the firstborn was the only thing that can be offered for the family, God gave his firstborn to die for all of the families. He took all of our iniquity, all of our sin, all of our transgression. He took the full wrath of God. And at the cross, he took the knife he took the fire. He was forsaken so that one day we might be accepted. But on the third day, everybody say the third day. He was raised and restored to the love of his father. You see, in the story, Isaac was as good as dead, right? From the moment God made the pronouncement, he was as good as dead. He was figuratively dead for three days. And so then at the end, he was figuratively brought back to life. That's what it says in Hebrews. But the greater Isaac was literally died. He literally died. And on the third day, God literally resurrected him from the dead. Come on. Oh, and then here's what's crazy. When you look at the story, one of the things that you realize is that Isaac's name is not mentioned again until he goes looking for his wife, his bride. 
So at the end of the story, we know Isaac is with Abraham and the men, but his name is not mentioned again until a few chapters later when he goes looking for his bride. And according to commentators, this also points to Jesus, the greater Isaac, because according to God's calendar, the next time we will see the greater Isaac is when he comes back in the second coming to find his bride. And if Jesus is the greater Isaac in the greater ram, then I would argue that the father is the greater Abraham. In the story, when you first read it, it almost feels like God's rubbing it in. Because he says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love. It almost feels like he's rubbing it in. Like, okay, I get it. Right? But when you look at it through the lens of the gospel, what you discover is that God wasn't rubbing it in. He was empathizing. Because one day he would have to be the one who actually gave up his son. I remember one time my mom and I were talking and she's like, I just don't get this story. This story bothers me so much. How can God ever require a father to give up his son? And I'm like, mom, come on. You can't think of anyone else? God wasn't rubbing it in. God was empathizing. Because according to John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His only son for you and for me. You know, one of the things I'm grateful for is that his name is Jehovah Jireh. Because if his name was just Jireh, all of us are Jireh to a degree, right? We're all providers to a degree. But I can tell you, I am not that great of a provider. I struggle with providing emotionally, financially. I'm not the dude. I struggle with that all the time. But praise be to God that he's not just another provider, but he is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And I feel that he most proved his ability to provide at the cross. And the other thing that stands out to me is that when you look at the story, the servants were left behind, Sarah was left behind. It was only a father and a son doing all the work. The same thing is true in the gospel. The gospel is quite literally God doing all of it and then we receiving it as a gift. As a, he did all the work, carried all the burden so that we might by faith get all the benefits. That's why the place is named the Lord will provide. He doesn't name it the place I obeyed, right? Or the place my son almost died. No, no, Abraham knew who the protagonist was. He knew who was ultimately doing the work. And so he named it, the Lord will provide. This story isn't ultimately about Abraham's faith. It's about God's faithfulness. And in the gospel, what we discover is that the ultimate and final provision was made and the ultimate and final debt was paid. The grace of God found in the greater Isaac is the only thing, the only thing that will ever produce 
a truly tested faith, a totally undivided heart, and a fully paid debt. Amen.